Depressed. Bored. Bored. I can't stand it. Angry. What is happening and why does this happen? Just the word makes me anxious. Makes me feel stupid. Mm. I can't do it. I can't. I have hit the wall. Would it surprise you that what these people are talking about is part of the bedrock of civilization as we know it? Something without which we would have no cars, computers, modern medicine, global economy, or the funky beats of Grandmaster Flash? That it's also something that kids toil away at every day of their industrious little lives. This is Carol Lloyd with Like a Sponge, Great School's very first podcast, where we explore what the science says about how children learn. And today we're talking about that great human invention called math. Mathematical thinking has opened the doors to the exciting adventures of science. Don't click off. This episode is dedicated to people who remember math class like this. Whoa, 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 area, whoa, 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 area of rectangle, whoa, 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 X, whoa, 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 Y, whoa, 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 area, whoa, 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 got it, whoa. That was Josh Kornbluth from his movie, Mathematics of Change. Math education is a hornet's nest of controversy, tales of woe, and yes, wars. When educators debate how they teach math, that's what they call it, the math wars. The very thought of it stirs deep fears, at least in America. According to surveys, as many as 50% of Americans suffer from math anxiety, and 6 in 10 say they've recently had trouble using math in their everyday lives. Internationally, the picture is starker still. America ranks well below average in math. By the end of eighth grade, U.S. math curriculum is two years behind math studied in top-performing countries. So what's going on here? Does America have a math crisis? Are our classrooms creating a population of low-achieving numberphobes who would, as one survey found, prefer to clean their bathrooms than do a math problem? There's one person who suggests that what America needs is nothing short of a math revolution. Can you introduce yourself? My name is Jo Bowler, and I'm a professor of mathematics education at Stanford University. I'm also the author of a book called Mathematical Mindsets. Jo is also the founder of UCubed, a center at Stanford University that provides resources about teaching math to kids, parents, and teachers. I ask her why so many people in the U.S. are so turned off by math. There's a very strong myth in the culture that you're either good at maths or you're not. You're born with a maths brain or you're not. Uh, that turns out to be untrue. Nobody's born with a maths brain. Nobody's born without one. Anybody can grow their brains to learn any level of school mathematics. But kids believe that. And so when they struggle with maths, many of them think, oh, I'm not a maths person, and they give up. So just this belief about being good or bad at math prevents kids from learning it. But Bowler also has a lot to say about classroom practices that damage kids' math learning. In fact, She's identified one common teaching technique that's a total math killjoy. Time tests of multiplication facts are the onset of math anxiety for many, many students. It is unbelievably damaging to give kids time tests. We know that now. Why? Because for a lot of kids, it makes them anxious and... We know that once you become anxious in math, part of your brain actually stops working. Are there other things you think contribute to it outside of the classroom? One thing that we know is damaging is when parents share with their children, I was no good at math in school. Their children's achievement goes down when parents share that. Many, many things in TV shows give damaging ideas about math. I'm appalled by the 
messages about maths that come out of Disney and other TV shows. They are constantly giving the idea that maths is only for nerdy kids, only for some kids. Case in point. Math? How am I supposed to know that? I'm a beautiful, popular, rich kid with a promising future in a lightweight sorority at a state college. I don't need to know that stuff. There's an assumption in our culture that girls don't like math as much as boys and aren't as good at it. What's the reality? We know girls are equally capable and every maths achievement test at every level shows equal performance between girls and boys. But there is an idea out there that boys are better at math. That's a myth. Now, on top of that, if maths is presented in a very procedural way with little opportunity for depth and connections, we know that's particularly off-putting for girls. What do we know about the best ways to learn math? Can you talk a little bit about memorization versus other kinds of learning? Yeah, a lot of uh, U.S. maths education is, uh, is very uh, much based on memorization. Students can come through all of their years of math in the U.S., memorizing their way through a lot of tests and they can do fairly well. And they'll tell you at the end of their education, they didn't understand any of it. Can I memorize this stuff? Let's see. X squared 2x. X squared 2x. Yes, I can. Okay, cool. Filling my head with equations. Packing and stuffing and filling my head with equations. Squeezing and stuffing and packing my head with equations. Stuffing and squeezing and filling my head with equations. So it came time for the calculus midterm and I just spit it all back out. And I aced it. That was Josh Kornbluth. Josh's story is that he didn't really ace it. He came in dead last, which has a clear corollary with Joe Buller's recent study analyzing the scores of 13 million students who took the international PISA tests. Back to Joe. What we found was that the lowest achieving kids in every country in the world were the memorizing students. They were the students um, who scored at the lowest levels in each country, but also the countries with high numbers of memorizers were all low achieving countries. The U.S. is one of them. I have two daughters who both love math and are pretty good at it, but they're slow. And this causes them a ton of frustration. Speed is always an issue. So what is disturbing to me is the number of students who are put off math because of a just speedy presentation of content um, who very quickly feel that they can't keep up. The irony of that is many mathematicians, some of the highest performing mathematicians in the world who've won the Fields Medal, talk about being very slow thinkers. Isn't there a limit? I've heard that there's this thing called a math wall where you hit the edge of your own math understanding and you can never go past it. There is no such thing as a math wall. But many people believe that. And I've experienced that with my Stanford students too. Many of them will say, well, I'll keep going until I hit my wall. Anybody can learn higher level content and we know now you can grow the brain pathways you need. That brain literally grows pathways that it needs to learn new content. So what's the answer to our math problem? I think we need a maths revolution. It's about changing um, the, the way classrooms are run, the tasks that kids have, the beliefs they hold about themselves. Buller's revolutionary exhortations aside, they're still skeptics. If I got a nickel every time I heard a parent explaining they didn't need higher math, so why all this pressure on their kids to do higher math? Well, my retirement calculations wouldn't be so challenging. In fact, the research suggests that math is more important than ever, 
especially when it comes to students of color who find themselves on the wrong side of the achievement gap. Once upon a time, there was a little girl named Montserrat. I really liked math as a kid. Just counting and stuff, I always found it really interesting. I, you know, probably around four or so, maybe six, something like that. Um, and I learned what multiplication was. I was thinking it was fascinating. Then in second grade, she had to learn her multiplication tables. And first of all, I was super disappointed. Second, I just had a really hard time memorizing. We took quizzes where they give you 15 different multiplications. So her mother went to visit her second grade teacher. And she, was, she just told her, she was. She said, you know, I, I've told Monse, it's okay. I've told her, you know, we're good at different things and she's just not good at math. She can do English, she can do other things. Um, just, just not math, it's not her thing. And I, I believed her. Like, you know, if you're a teacher, you're eight, your teacher tells you you're good at something or not good at something, you, you believe Her that. friends all joined the math club but they told her, no, no, you can't join it because you're not good at math. That became my identity in elementary school. But in sixth grade, something changed. They had an amazing teacher that, first of all, let me join the math Olympiad team. Suddenly it was not about memorizing things, but it was about solve kind of interesting problems and things like that. She played math games for hours with her friends and grew up to love math, but some things never changed. You know, that I was the kid that could not memorize my timetables. I, I really, never did, and I've survived <laughs> so far. Carol Lloyd here with Like a Sponge, Great Schools podcast where we explore what science says about how children learn. And today we're talking about changing the math story for kids like Monsa, who we just heard from. Monsa is finishing her degree in math at Stanford, but this happy ending isn't the norm, especially for a girl or a person of color. A lot of people know that America lags behind other countries in math. But what they may not know is how important advanced math courses are for kids on the wrong side of the achievement gap. Completing advanced math courses in high school has a greater influence on whether students will graduate from college than any other factor, including family background. In fact, one analysis found that differences in advanced math course taking accounts for one quarter of the income gap between low-income and middle-class families. That's insane. So how to reach those kids who could benefit from math the most? It's a problem that civil rights leader Bob Moses grappled with. He and my mother, Janet Moses, were heavily involved in the civil rights movement. And then my father extended that work into education and specifically working for algebra and math literacy as a civil right. That's Maisha Moses talking with us from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she runs the Young People's Project, a program her father founded in 1996. So what's the connection between math literacy and civil rights? Mathematics function as a gateway into 21st century jobs, skills, and careers. And it can also function as an obstacle or a block. Your father first started another organization called the Algebra Project. And I understand that the Young People's Project was started by kids in that program. Those eighth grade students 
were living in very poor community in Jackson, Mississippi. And they uh, came together around this idea of young people teaching math to each other after school. And so they started recruiting their friends and their peers. They would have 100 or so uh, middle school students after school working and doing math together. So... Was there a sense that these kids doing math together after school was a political act? Because the algebra project stems from my father's work in the civil rights movement, he was also seeding ideas in their minds about the need for young people really to have a voice at the table and to play a meaningful role in trying to solve the problem. And so today, it's an after-school program happening in eight cities. What have you seen in terms of the effect on the kids in the community? I think for the younger students, certainly they're looking up to the older students. They definitely improve in their math grades and their math test scores. But I think more importantly, it's their identity and their belief in themselves around their ability to do math. And it's sort of like, well, if, you know, he can do it or she can do it and they're just a few years older than I am, then then I can do it. Okay, children, let's start the day with a few new math problems. What is five times two? Carol Lloyd with Like a Sponge, Great Schools podcast where we explore what science says about how children learn. And today we're talking about math education. We all know the stereotype of the automatonic math teacher who is boring the students out of their gourds. But what does a teacher do who really understands math at a deep level, who also has the freedom to teach however they see fit? Can you just fill in the blank for me? Math is... Math is intensely and delightfully human. That's my answer. It's a human story. So if that strikes you, listeners, as a little unusual, maybe we should just have our guest introduce himself. I'm James Tanton. Hello. I guess my official title is Mathematician at Large for the Mathematical Association of America, which I think is the most beautiful and quirky title of all. How did you become America's professional math booster? I'm from Australia. I came here 30 years ago and I got my PhD in the United States and I was a college professor for a good number of years. And then my life turned to a fascination with the state of uh, school education. So I became a high school teacher for, for a good 10 years of my life. And now I work with the MAA, Mathematical Association of America, and I do general outreach work all across the country. Tanton says his mission is to bring joy to all levels of math. Mathematics is an intensely and delightful human experience that actually brings a sense of joy to the soul. Our souls are uplifted by mathematics. When you see true, playful, wondrous mathematics, it only makes the heart sing. And that's not the typical experience in the K-12 world and maybe not the college world either. And I started looking to the state of education back, you know, 20 years ago in this country, and it wasn't a very enlightened curriculum, and, and it didn't speak to the soul, the human soul. Math is intensely human. It's actually full of human stories. I mean, it comes from the basic level is, why are we obsessed with the number 10 for counting? Why do we choose base 10? Who chose the number 360 for the number of degrees in a circle? That's a very strange number if you think about it. Where'd that come from? Well, there are very human stories behind all those questions. They're actually very human answers. So I think, you know, that's an important part of the subject as much as the mathematics itself, how it fits in the human context of it all. I don't see that much in the, in the general state of the, uh, uh, the K-12 education, and I want to turn that around. As a high school teacher, you made it your mission to make math human. 
and teach underlying conceptual understanding. And that sometimes involved breaking the rules. I heard, for instance, that you let kids work on sets of problems, handing them in over weeks until everyone got 100%. You also assigned kids homework when they got stuck to take a walk and not think about the problem because that's the sort of thing mathematicians do, which often helps to shift the mind and unintentionally help solve the problem. Can you talk about some of the other things you did? I did all sorts of crazy things that drove my colleagues nuts. For example, I'd often give quizzes with all the answers supplied, you know, might be a trigonometry quiz, and I'd write, by the way, the answer's 4.2 meters, and then I'd leave a great big blank space. Because I was telling my kids, basically, I don't care about the actual numerical answer. That's just a final detail. And knowing me, I'll probably get the arithmetic wrong myself. But show me the process that gets the answer. That's what's the juicy part. That's what counts, the process to getting those answers. Wish James Tanton could teach your child math? He actually can. America's biggest math booster is taking his message of math love worldwide. On October 10th, 2017, he's aiming to inspire 1 million students to simultaneously take part in a single math problem during Global Math Week. If you're a teacher or parent and you want your children to change the channel on their math story, sign up at globalmathproject.org. So that's four, and then two plus four equals six, but that's three, which means adding one more to six is seven. Seven ropes. If this sounds a little different than the bedtime rituals you've experienced, you're not alone. The concept of supporting kids' reading by cuddling up with a story dates back to the early 20th century. But who drags a math problem into their child's bed? The answer, which we'll get to later, may surprise you. What we can tell you now is that the research suggests that getting your kids to love math may be way more about what happens outside the classroom than inside. Carol Lloyd here with Like a Sponge, a podcast about how kids learn. And this month, we're talking about the M word. That's right, math. Studies have found that early math skills, things kids can do before kindergarten, are more predictive of their success in high school than early reading or attention skills. But for a lot of us who grew up with bedtime reading, not bedtime math, the idea of early math is a little fuzzy. What kind of math are three-year-olds really expected to do? In the preschool years, kids are learning to count. They're learning the meanings of the number words. They're learning to compare sets, to combine sets, to think about um, how many sides a square has. Patterns is another example. Susan Levine is a professor of developmental psychology at the University of Chicago who researches early math and literacy skills. We know that when kids go to school behind in math, those gaps that exist for some kids tend to stay put. And so when you see those findings, you kind of, you know, it leads you to think about what's going on in the early environment that's creating those gaps to begin with, and can we close them before they even open? We have this idea that math is something that happens at school, not at home, and certainly not cuddling with your child at the end of a long day. Right. I think that it has become part of our culture that, you know, we read our kids' bedtime stories. But a lot of parents think that, as you said, that math uh, learning is the responsibility of schools. Yet when we look at naturalistic parent-child interactions that occur in home environments, 
we see that some parents are engaging their children in math learning. They might not view what they're doing as math activities, but they really are promoting mathematical thinking just by you know their number talk, their, their talk about uh, spatial relationships and shapes. They're doing blocks and puzzles with their kids. You've done research on parents interacting with their kids doing supported early math activities. It had some surprising results. We had some evidence that there's um, intergenerational transmission of um, poor math learning if if the adults that are interacting with kids are nervous about math. And this math app called Bedtime Math gives a way to talk about math to all parents. And uh, what we found was for parents who were given the math app, even if they were math anxious, Their kids learned as much math over the school year as kids of non-math anxious parents. And after a year, kids whose parents used bedtime math were ahead by three months in their math skills. I just cannot emphasize how huge that is because there are multi-million dollar reforms in schools that struggle to get kids ahead a month or two. And this is a free app. And even families that did it only twice a week had huge gains because it changes the conversation in the house. That's Laura Overdeck, the founder of the nonprofit Bedtime Math. With a degree in astrophysics and a husband who studies statistics, she originally developed Bedtime Math for her own young children. When friends wanted to know how she got her kids to love math so much, she started sharing her nightly math problems with an email list of local parents. She began to wonder if she could change the conversation in homes with parents who aren't as comfortable with math. Yeah, we think about this a lot. I think there is a cyclical problem that each generation passes it down to the next. Um, Parents don't like math, and unfortunately, they signal that to their kids very often. Um, Every time I'm in restaurants and I see adults passing the the receipt to someone else to figure out the tip. I mean, kids see us do that. That's not good. A lot of moms tell me that they tell their kids, I'm sorry, I can't help with your homework. You have to wait for your dad to get home. That's not good. Really not good for girls to hear that. How did you know that you'd hit on something that kids would love? My husband and I love math. And when our daughter was two, at night we'd read her a bedtime story and then we'd give her a bedtime math problem. It was totally not premeditated at all. (laughs) We just started doing it. We'd count stuffed animals. We'd count their noses. We'd count their ears. That meant we were multiplying by two. And over time, we rolled in addition and subtraction. We rolled in a second child (laughs) and then a third child. And the wake-up call for us was one night when our third one was two years old. He came running in yelling that he wanted his own math problem. And it made us realize that in contrast to all the hand-wringing in the press about curricula and teacher training and and math in general, um, that in our house, math is like dessert. You're trying to change kids' math experience at school, too. Yes. So we also started an after-school math club called Crazy. It's any school that can gather at least 12 kids can order a free kit from us. And the club is just really lively math. We have things like toilet paper Olympics. You know, they shot put the toilet paper, they do the long jump. And the thing is they're learning a ton of math because toilet paper is conveniently three squares in a foot. And we are hearing amazing stories about aha moments that kids have had where math that they were unsure of suddenly made sense to them when they started playing with it.
Yeah, you see me on the price On the tag, cause I'm feeling that nice <laughs> Yeah, I'm a decimal And I'm feeling so incredible Carol Lloyd here with Like a Sponge, Great Schools podcast about how children learn. And today we're talking about how can we change our math story? Experts have weighed in. We can start early and treat it like dessert, mix it up with play and games, scrap time tests and rote memorization, and let teachers break the rules. We also have to change math's public enemy number one, its unfortunate public image. To that end, we turn to one young man who makes his living using rhythm and rhyme to illuminate everything from a line of Shakespeare to the equation of a line. You are? My name is Ike Ramos, and I actually was a rapper and a producer, a music producer, as well as a DJ. After college, Ramos became a teacher and, as fate would have it, ended up becoming a principal for several years. I always used hip-hop either in the classroom or or in after-school programs. Uh, I now work for Flocabulary. Flocabulary is an online program for kindergarten through 12th grade that creates hip-hop music videos to teach science, history, Shakespeare, and, of course, math. So probably my favorite math rhyme, at least recently, is a one actually that another artist recorded for Flocabulary, and it's on ratios. I'm the crazy 80s baby rapping math on the radio. In the kitchen cooking gravy, yo, I use a ratio. Comparing parts to holes and parts to parts, that's a ratio, and I've mastered the art. Now, all of a sudden, kids are excited about ratios, and it's so powerful, uh, both for parents trying to help their students learn or, uh, you know, also for obviously for educators, you know, using it as a teaching tool. Ramos' background as a teacher gave him insights into why some kids, maybe a lot of them, may need non-traditional media to get excited about math. There's tons of research that supports how music helps facilitate, uh, you know, how we receive information and how it gets encoded in our brains and how it helps students form long-lasting connections to the to whatever they're learning, ratios, fractions, photosynthesis, etc. So then people always ask, well, why hip-hop? Why don't you use country music or R&B music? First of all, it has more words per song and larger vocabularies than other genres of music. So what we could fit into a three-minute hip-hop song would take four or five songs to cover in a country song or an R&B song. Do you have any advice for parents who are trying to get their kids to like math? I would just encourage parents to take what their kids are excited about um, and infuse that and incorporate that with what they're learning to make it a more enjoyable experience. Because anytime we can make something fun and put a smile on a kid's face, uh, we're going to be more successful at fulfilling whatever our goal is, whether it's learning fractions or, you know, photosynthesis or whatever it might be. You can also look for Flocabulary's new app so you can bring the math hip-hop revolution into your home. We hope you enjoyed the first episode of Like a Sponge. Thanks to Kristen Bull at Mathematical Sciences Research Institute, Joseph Thompson, Ella Levine at Firecracker Math, all the folks at Bedtime Math, Josh Kornbleth, Montserrat Cordero, Joe Bowler, James Tanton, Susan Levine, and Maisha Moses. Exponential gratitude goes to Ike Ramos at Vocabulary, who created an original composition for this show to change the equation of math in your life. 
And yo, math is for everyone, boy and girl. It could help solve problems around the world. Like a Sponge is produced by Carol Lloyd and Charity Ferreira of Great Schools, with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Sound production by Christopher Ferreira. For more information, including links to the resources mentioned in this episode, visit us at greatschools.org forward slash like a sponge. For everyone, yes, for everyone, math is for everyone. For everyone, math is for everyone, yes, for everyone.